Good afternoon. It's so good to be gathered back to here together with you, especially uh, thankful for my, my brother and sister-in-law who are here with us. It's always a pleasure to see them, especially uh, today. It's my brother's birthday. He turned 20, so we're all... <laughs> he turned 28. We're all thankful to see them here. Thankful for each and every one of you that's here, especially those of you who are visiting with us. As we, as we uh, open up God's Word, we're going to spend some time this afternoon looking at a, continuing a subject that we started a while back, looking at some of the things that challenge the growth of the church today. Now, we talked about before, one of the things that, that challenged the church was the fact that we, we had sometimes misplaced the, the source of authority. We need to look at anything that we, that we do, anything that we're a part of, and ask, where do we receive our authority to do this? Is it from heaven, or is it from men? And we spent a great deal of time looking at that, uh, at that topic. Today, I want to look at... Uh, change our, our view slightly, but still considering that something that, that poses a, a roadblock for the growth of the church, it poses a, a real problem, and that is denominationalism. It's a great challenge confronting the church today. According to one account, and this is a, uh, on, a little bit on the, the lower side, uh, one account says there are more than 38,000 different denominations in the world today. I've heard numbers as high as 70,000 before. But there are more than 38,000 different denominations. That's different religious organizations bearing many different religious names. And that hinders the spread of the gospel. Maybe you've, you've possibly heard somebody say before, why, why can't you Christians just seem to get along? There's so many different types and different flavors and different breeds. And how come there's so many? Why can't you all just be unified? Well, that's, that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon and the dangers that denominationalism presents to the church. Confronting uh, uh, This problem confronted the church very early on. Some might tend to think that this was a problem that started with the Protestant Reformation, maybe around the, the 1500s. That's where denominationalism comes from. That actually is, uh, is not the case. To be properly understood, we would, note that, we would need to note that the origins of denominationalism, the origins of, of these divisions, goes all the way back to about the second century. Not too long after Christ institu- or after the church was instituted, not too long after the death of Christ, we started to see these divisions. So we need to ask some questions, though. What, what is denominationalism? What, what is, is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Uh, and that's what I want to look at in this afternoon's study. First thing we need to do is we need to define what a denomination is. Now, the American Heritage Dictionary says that a denomination is a large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name and organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy Uh, by their common name and tie to a governing body from the local congregation they are denominated they are they are devised out into groups from all congregations and they may not all submit to the same authority so some examples of what a denomination is would be something like the roman catholic church The Roman Catholic Church is a denomination made up of those churches that submit to the authority of the Pope in Rome. Another example of this is the Eastern Orthodox Church. That is a denomination made up of of churches that submit to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, The Anglican Church of England is a denomination made up of those churches that submit to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod is made up of those churches that submit to the Synod in Missouri. And this is just a, a, a sampling. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that these are, are all that, that confront or all that make up a denomination, but here's an example of some denominations that exist. A denomination is just simply a group of congregations that are joined together under some governing body, and they all wear the, very, the same and, or distinctive 
name. That is simply put what a denomination is. So then if that's what a denomination is, then what is denominationalism? What does that in, in, uh, entail? And the American Heritage Dictionary goes on to say that that's the tendency to separate into religious de- de- uh, denominations. It's an advocacy for separation into religious denominations, and it's a strict adherence to denominations. Or another way, word for it is sectarianism, a, 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 a adherence to a certain sect, a certain, um, a certain offshoot, maybe, of another group. So for this purpose, in, in this study this afternoon, I'm going to be applying the term denominationalism or denomination in, in this, sort of, uh, this sort of vein. Uh, whenever we, we think about the way denominational divisions exist today, these are the things that should come to our minds. Because there are many different denominations today. And many in the denominational world today are, are really not all that devoted to their denomination. A lot of times you'll find people from a certain denomination and they don't even, don't even really know everything that that denomination teaches. Um, I've, I've had friends before in the past that we might be talking about the things that their church teaches and they say, well, I didn't, I didn't even know that that was something that they believed. But that's who I am. I'm still, I'm still a part of that. I don't agree with that, but that's, that's still what I'm going to be a part of. Uh, but what, what has failed to understand there then is that Whenever we tie ourselves to that, by being a member of, of any certain denominational division, then we are, we are advocating for that division. We are advocating for that separation of, of the church into many different religious divisions or denominations. And so denominationalism really is a challenge confronting the church. And some consider it, though, however, they say, is it really all that bad? Is there really anything, anything wrong with that? Can it not be seen as a blessing? Because then, if that's the case, if we can just divide the church up and we have these, these different, uh, d- different sort of little beliefs, but, but we, we really all kind of believe the same thing, well, doesn't that eventually lead to me being able to just go to the church that's, that best suits me and you go to the church that best suits you? And, and if we do that, we can all be happy and we can all be blessed by God. Join the church of your choice. That's the sort of mindset that's sometimes brought up in the world today. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Because, after all, you and me and everybody in this world, we, we have a desire to be happy. I don't think any of us, uh, very few of us, wake up in the morning and go, I just don't want to feel good today. I don't want to be happy today. I don't, I, I'm really looking forward to, to just being uncomfortable and being grouchy. Most of us wake up and want to feel good. And this is a very feel-good thought. I can go where I feel good, and you can go where you feel good, and we'll just be happy together. But let's take a biblical perspective for just a moment. And let's consider why the Bible teaches that denominationalism is wrong. And the first thing that I want us to note is denominationalism is unscriptural. That is, it is without scriptural support. There is no basis in the Bible for, for any local church to be divided up into, a, into various denominational bodies. There's just no evidence for that anywhere in the Bible that we can find. There is no denomination that can go to the Bible and say, you see that passage right there? That passage, that's the passage that talks about our church. That's where our church is talked about. There is no denomination that can do that. Because in the New Testament, there weren't denominations. There were local churches that were independent. They were autonomous. That means they were self-governed. So there's no congregation, uh, a group of congregation that's, that falls under the the hierarchy of another, say maybe a head church or say the Pope, 
There's no uh, church like that that can come out and say, you know what, we're like this church here that we read about in the Bible because that church that you read about in the Bible was not like them. They were organized independently and autonomously and within the local congregation. The, the organization was limited in that aspect. Whenever there were elders, they're also known as pastors or bishops or overseers or presbyters. Whenever we read about those titles, they were appointed as overseers or elders or pastors over one congregation, not over many congregations. If you look over to Acts chapter 20, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 Paul, or Luke records of Paul, from Miletus, uh, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come, <clears throat> he said to them, we have this conversation that, that Paul has with the elders that were in Ephesus. But these elders that were in Ephesus, were, 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 they, were they different from the, the presbytery, from the, the bishops that we see today? Was there anything that, that was specific about them that is different from what we have in a lot of organizations today? Let's turn over to verse 28. Some of the things that he said to them. Be on guard, to these elders of Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you. Overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What did Paul say to the elders there in Ephesus? He said, be on guard for... And, and, and shepherd those people who are among you, those people that are in Ephesus with you. These are the people that you have been put entrusted over. You have been appointed as an elder over them, and you are to you are to shepherd them. You are to uh, be the bishop of the church there in Ephesus, and you are to to watch out for that flock. And that's not a a, a kind of a, a a once and done sort of thing. Peter in First Peter chapter five. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2 has very similar informa uh, information and wording. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore I exalt, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. Again, Peter was giving the same exact message that Paul was giving. That an eldership, a, a presbytery, a, the, the, the board, uh, if you will, of, of men who have been set to, to watch over and shepherd a flock, was to shepherd the flock that was amongst them. They were not to set up a, a council to where they, they shepherd this flock and this flock and this flock and, and kind of after a while have all these churches that fall underneath them. In fact, that's where the church, that's uh, one of the first apostasies after, after John's revelation and, and is recorded and we see into the, the second century that you started to have leading bishops that would arise and they would start to control uh, and, and make decisions and, and shepherd other congregations not of their own. None of that is ever found anywhere. There, there's no example of that in Scripture. In fact, the only authority above the local church, the only authority uh, that is ever given to someone to, to be able to make decisions for more than one congregation is the authority that has been given to Christ as the head and to His apostles. And once the church began, those apostles were not replaced after they died. Turn over to Acts chapter 12. Sometimes it has, been, it has been noted, well, that makes sense that the apostles had that power and, and that's where the papacy came from. It was, 
it was uh, the, the, the apostles, and once, once, the, once that apostle died, then he was replaced, and we just continue this, this process until you have um, Pope Francis today. So Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let's read about what happened after the death of the apostles. Acts chapter 12 says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John. This is one of the apostles. He had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. And now we really don't need to keep on reading, but I encourage you to do so. But I'll go ahead and give you a, a little bit of a spoiler. That's the last we hear about the position that James held as an apostle. There was no one to replace James or Paul, or Peter, or any of the other apostles after their death, that was the end of that position which God had given them. It had served its purpose in, in confirming the Word and in, in giving the church uh, its, its beginnings and its roots as they, as they started planting churches in the world. But through the Word of God, the authority of Christ and the authorities of His apostles, it does continue. It does continue today. That's what we talked about before. That authority, is it from heaven or from men? We still, have, we still have a hierarchy. But it is not found in any man or any organization or any group. It is only found in Christ Jesus and in His words. So individuals, synods, conferences, um, councils, etc., etc., any name you want to give those groups that somehow presume to, to have authority over local congregations, local churches today, they do so without scriptural authority. And so that is to say it is unscriptural. It's not in the Bible. But some might be tempted to say, well, is that, is that really that big a deal? Just because it wasn't recorded in the Bible, isn't it still a good thing? Isn't it a good thing that if you have maybe some really pious, really righteous people, they should make decisions so these other congregations don't fall into error? Well, let's consider this. Not only is it not in the Bible, but it's also against the Bible. Turn over to John chapter 17 for a moment. See, not only is it without scriptural support, it is contrary to what the Bible teaches. It is contrary to the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus praying this prayer for the disciples in the world, He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one. We have recorded for us here is a prayer that Jesus is praying for you and for me and for all who would believe in Him. It says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, and even as, I, or as, you, have, uh, even as you have loved me. Jesus desired unity. Not division, unity in his believers. And that is, a, that is a big word in today's landscape. And it should be. It should be for very important reason. We should desire unity. But so oftentimes, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a, a little cartoon I saw one time of the Pope, and I, I believe it was this, this patriarch of Constantinople, whoever holds that position today, and this argument over unity. 
And the Pope said, can't we just sing this song of unity together? Just, just sing with me. It's a, a song of love and, and of, of, of working together in, 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 in Christ to do His will. And the patriarch said, well, I would love to do that, but the things that you believe and the things that you, uh, you stand for, they, they go against what I see in the Bible. And so I, I don't feel like I can do that, Pope. I don't feel like I can sing this song. And throughout the cartoon, he, he kind of eggs him on and urges him, and he finally sang the song with him. And in, in around the second verse, the Pope started making up words about him being the, the supreme holiness and, and him being in place of Christ and all these things that would have went against the patriarch. And he said, you, you see right there, Pope, you're, you're, trying, you're trying to not to create unity. You're trying to make me think like you are. So often today, we, as members of, of, of the Lord's church, and, and members of denominations mistake unity for the effort to make you see what I see. Make you believe what I believe. Well, that's not the unity that Jesus talked about, was it? When Jesus talked about unity, he said, I, want, I would pray that they would be like you and me, God. Not like, not like a, a, a group in God and not like a group in their beliefs in God. That they would be like you and me, God, that we would be one. And so to answer this problem of unity, uh, many denominations have created what I've recently learned about is the umbrella of, of faith, the umbrella of fellowship. And uh, essentially what they look at is to say that there are, there are a few common beliefs. And if we can agree on these beliefs, then we can have unity. Those beliefs would be things that me and you would definitely agree with. The, uh, the virgin birth of Christ. We, we will agree on those things so we can have unity. Uh, the, the, the monotheistic uh, evidence that there is only one God. We would certainly believe that. There are no other God but, 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 uh, but God. There's no, no uh, you know, Buddha or Hindu or any of these gods that they serve. They're, they're, they're not real. They don't exist. So we could agree on that. Um, they, they believe in the, the power of, of salvation is through Christ's blood and through His grace and faith in that. And I don't believe any of us would, would have a problem acknowledging that. And they believe that Jesus really did come to this earth and He died and was raised from the dead. And they hold to these beliefs and say, if we can agree on these things, well then there's these other things that we might not agree on and that's okay. We can just agree to disagree on them, such as the Trinity. Maybe we don't all agree that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are, are one thing, or that is even a, a concept whatsoever. But that's okay as long as we agree on that center core of, of beliefs. Or maybe baptism. That's okay if we don't have to all believe that baptism is for salvation. As long as we believe these, these core beliefs, we're all Christians and we can agree to disagree. But is that what Jesus prayed for? Did He pray that we would be united in some things, that we would have unity in, in a little bit, but in the majority of things, we would just, we would just kind of shove those under the rug and we'll, we'll just agree to disagree on them. I don't believe that's what Jesus wanted at all, and I don't believe that's what His apostles wanted. When we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he has some very stark words that he uses to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree to disagree. I don't think that's the words he used there. He says that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. 
Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? These people, these people very likely shared the same beliefs. But they had some disagreements, some division amongst them, that which they were arguing over. And Paul said, I, I, I don't want you to argue. I don't want you to agree to disagree. I want you to agree and there be no division among you. Well, how does that happen? How can we do that if someone over here says this and someone over here says that? Well, the answer is to make, make there be one standard. I will, not, I, 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 will, I will have one standard, and that is what is going to be uh, what, what guides my beliefs. And then we can all agree and have no division when we stand upon God's Word as that one standard. See, we need to understand that what Paul was saying to them is that this division, these arguments, they're not no big deal. It is a reflection that you are not spiritual. It is a reflection that you are still fleshly. Look what he says in chapter 3. Still talking about this argument they were having. In verse 3 he says, You are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, not, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Paulos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He goes on to say that, that they were all one. The, the one who planted, the one who watered, they are, they are nothing because God is the one that gives the increase. And so the one that planted, the one that watered, they are one, but they are one whenever we are, when we realize that we are God's fellow workers. And so we have to make sure that we are working in God's field. We are building up God's building. And to be able to do that, we need to be working by God's rules. Another way we might say that is allowing Him to rule in our hearts. Maybe another way to say that is allowing Him to be the Lord of our life. If we will do that, we will submit ourselves to His authority. And we need to also understand that whenever we allow division in the church, whenever we allow these things to go on, we are making the blood of Christ of a, a very little profit to man. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because a lot of times we, look at, we, we, we think about Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and, and we focus on some really important things that are brought to us by that. Christ's sacrifice on the cross brought us freedom from sin. Yes, we, all, we, we understand that. His sacrifice on the cross, that blood that was shed on the cross, brought us hope. But look what Ephesians chapter 2 says in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Do we ever really stop to think that Christ died so there wouldn't be any more division? So division could be a way of the past? We could get rid of division and have unity? And yet, what, what has the church done time and time again but divide? Divide and go separate ways and, and, and do separate things and even, even give their authority to separate groups or separate people. And what do we do with the blood of Christ when we do that? We take away the part of the effectiveness that it had. Part of the reason that it was spent was to break down that wall of division. Part of the reason that it was, was shed was to reconcile man into one body. 
And so just as our sins work against the efforts of Christ on the cross, whenever we sin, we, we, we are treating His blood as if it was something common. So does denominational division. So does the, the intent to divide His church. The advocacy that it's okay for us to just agree to disagree. That's why we see that these things are not just unscriptural. They're not just in, not in the Bible. They are against they are against what God's Word tells us over and over again. And therefore, they are harmful to the cause of Christ. We read in John 17, verse 21, very important words. And that is that Jesus knew that the unity amongst His disciples would be the final apologetic. That word apologetic, if you don't know what that means, think of the word apologize. And, and we oftentimes misuse that word today. And I tell the boys to apologize. They go to the other boy and go, I'm sorry. And then they run on. That's not an apology. An apology is a defense. An apology would be going to them and saying, I kicked you in the teeth, and you know what? I don't have a good defense for that. There's no good reason that I can give you, and I need to repent of that. That's an apology. A giving of a defense. Well, Christ knew that unity would be that final defense, that final reason, the final apologetic for the world, as he said in verse 21, that they may believe. In view of Jesus' words, then we should not be surprised. We should not be shocked when unbelievers are slow to accept the gospel message when it comes from a divided church. Many point to the divided condition of those professing to follow Christ. Like atheists and agnostics, they point to the divisions and they say, why would I believe, why would I believe in a God that I can't see when you can't even agree on the things that he wrote down? Why would I believe in him? Muslims and Jews look to, to the Old Testament. They said, that God didn't seem like he was divided. Why would I follow the followers of this Jesus who can't agree on what he teaches? Even cults have arisen because of denominationalism. The Mormon church started as a reaction by Joseph Smith to the denominations of his day. He saw the division around him, and he saw something that should be very evident to us today. This isn't right. This isn't okay. And he may not have ran the right direction with it, but he had the, that, that was the right heart to look at all the division and say, this isn't correct. Jehovah's Witnesses used the same, the same uh, strategy, saying religious division is a problem, so we should all follow a strictly controlled organization. How can any true disciple of Christ then support a concept as harmful to the church as these divisions? I want to share with you some others who, who view denominations as wrong. And I'm just going to read the quotes first, and I'll give you their name. These are all men of the world. One says, I ask that men make no reference to my name, call themselves not Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? Do, do, uh, my doctrine, I am sure, is not mine, nor have I been crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christian. How then should I, poor, foul carcass that I am, come to have men give to the children of Christ a name derived from my worthless names? No, no, my dear friends, let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose doctrine we have. That was Martin Luther, a leader of the Reformation movement. 
a man who looked to the things around him and said, this ain't right. What the church is doing, the Catholic church, the Eastern Orthodox, what you all are doing is not right. And he wanted to make changes, to go back and let's just, let's do what the Bible says. But don't you dare, don't you dare call yourself after my name. You call yourself after the name that was given to us by God. Another one writes, would to God, excuse me, I would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgotten and that the very name Methodist might never be mentioned more but be buried in eternal oblivion. That was a quote from John Wesley. He was another Reformation leader and among whose his followers make up the Methodist church and the Wesleyans. And then this one. This quote says, I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope that the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. You know who said that? Arguably one of the greatest Baptist preachers that ever existed, Charles Spurgeon. You see, these men, they recognize something in their day. That this is not what God wants. He does not want names and divisions. He wants His church that He died to establish. And He wants that church to thrive and to grow. And this, this goes against that. Now, I will note that these men, while they were, they were disgusted by denominational names, they, they still held to organizational ties. And organizational ties above the local church, whether that be a, a council, whether that be a, a, a man such as the Pope, whether that be any sort of group, whenever those began to lead, denominationalism always follows. Once local churches are organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy, you can bet that the denominational names will soon follow. And so it is that denominationalism, with its religious division, it just continues to grow. Now, if local churches are successful and are to be successful in confronting the challenge of denominationalism, then they need to remain independent and autonomous. They need to have an effort to say, we will continue to be self-governed the way that the churches that we read about in the Bible were self-governed. They need to refuse organizational associations. We will not have the, the Central Kentucky Council of Churches of Christ. But rather, there will be the Lake Street Church of Christ and they will make their decisions for what they do. And you will have other churches and they will make decisions for what they do. But we will not organize them all up into a group because there is no evidence of that in God's Word. And we must refrain from using denominational names, names that divide and steer ourselves towards the names that God Himself gave to the church. Names like the Bride, the Kingdom, the Church, and yes, even the church of Christ or the church of God. See, churches that succeed in avoiding denominationalism, again, churches that succeed in avoiding division, are more likely to be nothing more than a local church belonging to Christ. That's what my desire is for Lake Street, and I believe that's what the congregation here's desire is, is for us to be simply Christians, to be able to, to, to be described as what we can, be, we can read in the Bible, in God's Word. Christians who seek to follow Jesus and who seek to be His disciples. Christians who seek to answer the prayer of our Lord for unity among believers. Maybe that's your desire too today. 
is to be simply a Christian. God's Word has much to say about how we do that. It begins by hearing His Word and believing it. Mark chapter 16 tells us that, that he that doesn't believe is condemned because he will not ever take the next steps to following after the Lord. There's, there's no reason to go any farther if you don't believe that God is real, if you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you don't believe that He is alive today and that was, He was resurrected, why, why even take a next step? Because those steps are taken in faith. So we must believe. And we must be willing to tell people that. We mentioned Romans 10.10 10 this morning. Confession brings about salvation. We must be willing to tell others that we believe Jesus died on the cross and that He lives today. And by believing that and having an awareness of God, a reverence for Him, that will cause us to react in obedience to Him. Obedience such as Acts chapter 17, verse 30, when He says, Repent. Turn away from your selfish ways, from the things that you just think, this is, this is what I think is best, this is what I think is right. You turn away from that and you turn to God and turn to His righteousness. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, receive forgiveness of your, sin, of your sins through baptism. It is in baptism. It is when we are buried in those waters of, of baptism that we come into contact with the blood of Christ. And that gracious power is able to work within our souls. If there is some way that we can help you tonight, I would encourage you, please, don't hesitate any longer. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.